the following podcast was recorded on Wednesday, October 25th, 2023, featuring Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. To hear the podcast in real time, you can sign up for a free trial at arborresearch.com or biancoresearch.com or by emailing Gus Handler directly at gus.handler at arborresearch.com. You can also call Arbor Research and Trading at 1-800-606-1872. Thanks for your time and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talking Data. I'm your host, Kristen Radish, with Arbor Research and Trading, joined today by our commentator, Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. Today, Jim explains why we should not expect a reversion to the quantitative easing era. Jim, every quarter, there's been a pattern that starts as a contraction and turns into a boom. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so um, I think that the I'll tease what we're going to kind of lay out later on, and that is everybody assumes that interest rates are punishingly high, so they start off very pessimistic, and then they realize that that pessimism was misplaced, and we go from contraction to boom. So let's dig into this with the first chart. These charts come from Bloomberg. Bloomberg regularly surveys about 70 economists. They update them whenever the economists change their forecast, which means at least once or twice a week. Um, the vertical line on this chart shows the expectation for second quarter GDP. Uh, the vertical line is the beginning of the second quarter, March 31st. Pri to the left of the line, prior to the quarter, most of the consensus forecast for second quarter GDP, so this would be in January and February and March, was negative. We thought that the second quarter, we being the collective of all the economists, thought that the second quarter would be a, a contraction, a negative growth quarter. Then the vertical line, the quarter started as late as uh, May. They were still thinking it was going to be about a zero quarter. And then all of the revisions started going higher and higher and higher. And we got to 2.2% for the actual quarter. So we started off the quarter as a contraction. Then we realized it wasn't going to be a contraction. And then they revised it higher. Go to the next chart. That's the third quarter. Now we're recording on uh, Wednesday, October 25th. The third quarter GDP numbers will be out the next day tomorrow. So what do they expect? Well, let's talk about where we were. The vertical line on the chart is June 30th, the beginning of the third quarter. Everything to the left of the chart was, what did we think was gonna be in the third quarter? Does this pattern sound familiar? It was negative. April, May, June, we thought it would be a contraction quarter. Um, and then by about mid-July, we started to see the revisions go above and go and go and go. And now they're in the mid threes with some people thinking that the quarter could be as high as 4%. This is a massive change. We thought 100 days ago, the third quarter was going to be a contraction. It turned out that the third quarter was probably one of the strongest quarters not related with the immediate aftermath of COVID in the last decade. We don't really understand the economy is really what it boils down to. Now let's go to the next chart. Uh, this is the fourth quarter, which just barely began um, in uh, purple and in green is the first quarter of next year. The fourth quarter, you could see in August and as late as September, we were still at the fourth quarter is going to be one-tenth of one percent. And now you can see we're in the process of starting to revise up the fourth quarter. And you can see that the first quarter of next year is still somewhere around zero. 
this pattern, I, I didn't even show the first quarter or the fourth quarter last year because uh, uh, for time considerations, the pattern is the same. What do economists think the next quarter is going to be? Contraction. Why do they think it's going to be contraction? Because interest rates are punishingly high, which I'll get to in a second. Then it turns out, well, maybe they're not. And then during the quarter, we get payroll reports, retail sales reports, industrial production reports. And we start to realize there's nothing wrong with the economy. It continues to move higher. But never mind that we were wrong in the fourth quarter. We think it's going to happen in the first quarter. We were wrong in the first quarter. Think it's going to happen in the second quarter. We're wrong then. Think it's going to happen in the third quarter. Probably going to be wrong in a big way when we get the GDP numbers tomorrow. Not to worry. That contraction is coming in the fourth quarter, which is the current quarter we're in, or the first quarter next year. Just keep saying it long enough, and eventually one day it might be correct. And I think it's all revolving around higher interest rates. And Jim, how is housing doing? So it's good we bring up housing because that is probably the most interest rate sensitive sector there is. So if we go to the first chart, this is what everybody understands. This is a calculation of the median price that a first time home buyer has to pay on their monthly rent. It just went over $2,000 a month. Now, as late as the fourth, uh, as late as 2020, it was under $1,000. So it has doubled in the last three years. Holy cow, it has doubled in the last three years. This has got to crush housing that the average monthly payment has gone up 50%, and it's the most sensitive sector there is to interest rates. Well, let's take a look. So if we go to the next chart, the next chart shows you the level of sales. How many sales do we have? And sales are down. If you look at the uh, blue line on the left scale, that's seasonally adjusted. So that's annualized rates for existing homes, There's 85 million existing homes. That has gone from 6 million or so, 6.5 million or so um, um, rate of sailing of those homes as late as um, early 22 to somewhere around under 4 million. So it's, its sales are down by a third. The orange line on the right chart is new construction or um, new home sales. Now that's run, that was running at around, you know, somewhere um, in 21 at around 950 to a million units a year. That number is down to around 700,000 units a year. Now I didn't put this chart in, but I'll say to you that the percentage of new home sales has fallen greater than the percentage of new construction so that the percentage of new construction that makes up all home sales is around 36% right now. It's the highest it's been and since we've been measuring these statistics. It's usually much lower. Now, why is that? If we go to the next chart, we know that the new, we know mortgage rates, monthly payments have gone up a lot. We know that transactions are down because monthly payments have gone up a lot. What has been the reaction to that? Well, on the same scale, the red line is new home sales, so new construction. And on the blue line is existing home sales. Well, the red line shows new construction peaked at around $500,000. Now, remember, new construction is a premium. It might be a little bit higher end than the average house. So it should trade above existing uh, home sales. But it's gone down. You can see that it peaked in October 22, right after the Fed started, and those prices have gone down. What about existing home sales? They've kind of gone sideways. 
They're 420,000 in June of 22, right after the Fed started raising rates. 399,000 now, but they were real close to 420,000 two months ago. So they've been meandering sideways. How do I interpret this? Let's start with new home sales. Uh, new home sales, uh, those are builders. Builders got to move inventory. They, it's inventory and it's got to go. Cut the price, get it off my books. Uh, they've also got higher input costs of, um, you know, their mortgages are, or their construction loans are variable. They've got uh, the, the, their carrying costs. They've got higher input costs. The workers that build these buildings want raises. They got to move and they got to get on to the next project. They've cut. Existing home sales, they're not moving. Basically, home, home sellers are saying, I want X for my house. Oh, but interest rates have gone up and that means that people's monthly payments to buy your house is going up. Fine, I want X for my house. If nobody wants to buy it, it will stay out there with that price until somebody wants to buy it. In other words, they're not motivated to cut their price. Why are they not motivated to cut their price? It's not because they're sitting on losses. You can see the blue line, if you look at where it was in 2019 versus where it is now, it's because they're not forced to. It's because they're not being squeezed to say, I got to get rid of this house. Also, it might be because of work from home. Oh, I got a new job opportunity in another city, so I must sell my house to move to another city. No, it's just a different Zoom address to do my new job is what it is, and I could stay in this home. So even though mortgage, which is arguably the most sensitive, yes, the housing market has been hurt. But if you told me in a vacuum months ago, what's going to happen to housing when mortgage rates get to 8%, which is where they are now, I would have guessed, like pretty much everybody else, it would have been a lot worse than it is right now. But yet it, it's down, it's feeling the pinch, but it's holding up relatively better than you would have thought, considering we're talking about 8% mortgages. So Jim, are interest rates too high? That's the question, right? Is that, you know, if interest rates are not really hurting the economy, we go from traction to boom. If they're only modestly impacting the housing market, maybe they're not too high. So let's go to the next chart. This is the, uh, or the next chart after that. Uh, th this is the uh, fancy chart uh, that economists like to use. And this is tip yields, treasury inflation protected securities. The yield. Now, what is a tip if you're not familiar with them? It's a treasury bond that pays you two ways. One, you get the inflation rate. So if the inflation rate is 4%, you get more bonds. So you buy $100 worth of these bonds, the inflation rate's 4%. In one year, they just give you $4 more bonds. You now have $104 of bonds. And you also get an interest rate on those bonds. That interest rate is currently 2.5%. That's what the red line shows right now. And you'll hear a lot of people hyperventilating its highest level since 2009. The implication is this is real rates, what you have to pay above the inflation rate, that this is at a 15-year high, that this is punishingly high, that this is abnormal. I will say I don't think the current level of is abnormal. I think what people forgot about the 2009 to 2020 period, that was the QE period. That was the abnormal period. The average real yield from 2009 to 2020, as it shows in the chart, was 33 basis points, three tenths of 1%. We're two and a half. So they look at that and go, wow, it's really high. But this is not a QE period anymore. 
that was abnormal. In fact, if anything, we're in a QT period right now. So if we go to the next chart, the next chart shows what were real yields before 2009, from 1997 when they started trading them to 2009. The chart shows that they averaged 2.7%. We're 2.45 right now. We're returning to the levels of a pre-QE, a pre-financial crisis period. That was not a bad period for the economy. That was a great moderation period. The economy was fine with these level of interest rates. And I think it is now. We have anchored ourselves to the idea that zero was normal. And so when we see these big rises in rates, whether it's real yields or absolute yields, like the funds rate going from zero to five, or the 10-year yield going from 1%, which is where it was in 2020, to nearly 5% as well, we think that these are gigantic rises in rates. And we think that these are gigantic rises in rates that must hurt the economy. If we go to the final chart, the final chart here shows you that same red line from, 19, from 2009 to 1997, what, re, what the tips yield was. The black line on this chart is actual real yields. That's take the 10-year yield minus the year-over-year -year change in CPI. I took this back to 1962. That averaged 2.39%. Tips yield averaged 2.74. We're at 2.5. We're just at a normal level is what we're at. And that means that we're not at a level that should be punishing. That means we've got room to go, I think, as much as 100 basis points higher before we get to punishingly high levels. Now, let me be clear on what I just said. We could go 100 basis points higher and still not be punishing above that. I think we will be. That doesn't mean we have to. What I'm trying to illustrate is these are not punishingly high rates. That's why we've seen uh, contraction. Oh, these rates are going to kill, but it never does. The housing market is wobbly a little bit because of higher mortgage rates, but not getting annihilated like everybody thinks. All these rates are showing us is they're returning back to some kind of pre-QE normal. And if the economy can handle these higher rates, which is what I'm arguing it can, then there's no reason why they can't continue to drift higher. If we need, if there is a concern about elevated inflation, we need restrictive rates. We're not there. So we need to go higher to get those even those restrictive rates. We are not with people on their knees going, stop, stop, I can't take it anymore. Um, there are some over-levered people, like you know, um, private equity funds that built their business model around zero money from 2009 to 2020, which are suffering, in uh, others like that. But most people are not suffering because of these higher rates, certainly not the economy. Relatively speaking, housing is holding up. If these rates are not that punishing, there's no real zeal for them to come down. They could even drift higher if inflation becomes sticky. And in many of these podcasts, I've talked about the idea that we're in a 3%, 3.5% inflation world. We're not in a 2% inflation world. And if we're in a 3, 3.5% inflation world and the Fed says that's a little bit high, these rates aren't going to do it. We're going to have to see rates go up. Now, what rates are we talking about? The Federal Reserve has been made it clear. Jay Powell, the week before we were recording, spoke at the New York Economics Club and basically parroted the line that a lot of other people have parroted. The market is doing the work for the Fed. The market is taking up rates and tightening financial conditions. Be very careful of that, Jay. 
because when markets do this, then they tend to way overshoot. When you let the market do the work for you, you might not like it. Want an example of that? Last year. Last year in the UK, Liz Truss was appointed the Tory prime minister, conservative prime minister. She put up a mini budget, which called for tax cuts, increased spending, and a bigger deficit. The market didn't like it. Politicians in the parliament were unmoved. Ah, we'll talk about this budget. There's something here we can work with. The bond market in the UK, the gilt market said, no, this is a mistake. So what happened? The market did the work for parliament. It took interest rates up 150 basis points, one and a half percent, in like 10 days. The Bank of England has like 300 years of data of guilt trading. That's never happened in 300 years. What followed after that? The budget crashed, the Chancellor of the Exchequer um, cartoon, the um, equivalent of our uh, uh, Treasury Secretary resigned. Liz Trust, you remember the famous meme, she would last as long as a head of lettuce. After 44 days, she had to resign as the prime minister and it created all kind of havoc and angst in their economy. You want the market to do your work and you, and you shrug your shoulders? That's what happened with parliament with the budget last year and the market did its work. The market said, we don't want this budget. You want us to stop this budget? We'll stop this budget. If we get into an inflation problem and the Fed is shrugging their shoulders going, Oh, the market will take care of this inflation problem. Stand back and watch how it will take care of this inflation problem. Because what I've just argued is we're not overly tight right now. And you might start to see that go up. Well, where will that show up the most? Final thought for you, equities. Whenever I say this, people are like, oh, you mean there's going to be no recession? You mean that earnings are going to be okay? You mean that the stock market's going to boom? Yes, there's going to be no recession. Yes, earnings are going to be okay. There's a big problem though with the stock market. The last, um, this year, Dr. Jeremy Siegel put it out a new edition of his, of his famous book, Stocks for the Long Run. In the book, he just says, what is the long-term return for the stock market? I'm just summarizing real quickly, around 8%. That's over many, many years, over many cycles. You know, stock market is unchanged for two years, uh, but it had a big boom in late half of 20 and early into 21. So over many, many years, it would return 8%. What's the yield on a money market fund? It's approaching five and a quarter, five and a half percent. You could get two thirds of the return of the stock market without much, of, without any of the market risk. Is taking all that market risk worth it for the final third? Well, if we're just going to have a recovery and we're going to have a positive quarters and the earnings are going to beat a little bit, probably not. And that's why stocks have struggled all year, even though we're not having a recession and we keep beating on everything, because there is an alternative of higher interest rates. And if they have to go higher, it becomes even more of an alternative. Stock market has to do something really special to drag people out of 5.5% money market funds and 5% bonds in order to buy them. It didn't have to do a whole lot special in 2019 and 2018 when the alternative was zero. But it does now, and it's not. It's doing okay, but its result is, other than seven AI stocks, the rest of the stock markets returned you zero this year after a bear market last year. So it may not be as bullish for stocks because of the competition. Yeah, you're right. I like this. They're going to beat earnings. And fine. I'm happy with a 5.5% money market fund. I'm going to get two-thirds of what you're going to give me anyway over many years. And you haven't made me the case that that risk for that final third is worth it. I'm sitting in a bond fund. I'm sitting in a money market fund. That's why money is pouring into bonds and money markets. 
and not in the stocks. And it all comes back to rates might not be high enough yet. The economy might be going. And if this inflation problem lingers, we might still see even higher rates. So yeah, you might still see positive GDP and you might see okay earnings, but that competition is gonna get even greater and it's gonna be even harder for the stock market to jump over that hurdle. Jim, thank you for your thoughts today and thank you everyone for joining us. If you have any questions on Arbor Research, Bianco Research, or Arbor Data Science, you can email us. You can email Gus Handler at gus.handler at arborresearch.com. Thanks everyone and have a great day.